It's Sunday, May 26th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Here are the top headlines for the show this week. This has harmed everyone, especially the soldiers. We are working with the Department of National Defense to make sure uh, that this is done right. Hopefully Congress will approve the USMCA quickly. You know, she's a mess. Let's face it, she doesn't understand it. Are you worried about the economic impact of a possible U.S. ban on Huawei and Chinese telecom companies? We need to take a measured approach. I request leave to introduce Bill 1, the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. We've been very clear that we're going to implement our federal backstop. It's not free to pollute anywhere in Canada. Outraged and insulted, veterans and family members of Canada's fallen, those who paid the ultimate price in Afghanistan, say they now fear they are being forgotten as the government has unveiled a new Kandahar battlefield memorial in secret. Veterans and family members of the fallen were not invited to this dedication and many found out about it on social media. For them, it is one more example, they say, of a bureaucracy that needs to change. We asked for both the Minister of National Defence and the Minister of Veterans Affairs on the show today. Neither were able to join us, so instead, we're sitting down with veterans. Joining me now here in studio are retired Captain Sean Bruya, an advocate for veterans' rights, and retired warrant officer Ed Story, who was the driving force behind the operation called Operation Keepsake, which helped bring home a key Afghan war memorial from Camp Mirage. Uh, Ed, you're a veteran and you were involved in bringing home one of these memorials. How did you feel when you saw what happened to the Kandahar Memorial and that it's been put behind closed doors where veterans and the public and families of the fallen can't access it? I was extremely disappointed, uh, let down. Uh, I look at it, at it as um, a, a lost opportunity. That, uh, that monument could have been, uh, that memorial could have been placed in another location with similar security and yet accessible to the public. And, and it could have been something that that 50 years from now, if, if somebody wanted to have a parade or, or have a large group, they could actually go and visit the site. When you see where it is, why is that so insulting for members of the Fallen's families or for veterans like yourself when they're saying, look, we just wanted to have a small ceremony so that it would be dignified, it's all about security, it's all about protecting it. You don't believe those arguments? No, no. I, I think there's more to it than, than those arguments that have been put forward. Uh, I'd hate to, to think that it was all about money, but perhaps it is. E either way, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an insult to uh, the families of the fallen that uh, that memorial uh, has been placed in a location where they can't get to it, and they never knew that it was going to be unveiled. Do they feel they're being forgotten? I think, I think so. I can't speak for, for families of the fallen, but I'm sure that, that they uh, feel forgotten. I know I do. It's, it's like we're trying to, you know, let's brush this this period of history away, keep it hidden, and we'll move on to something else. Almost like the government's ashamed. Almost. Or, or dare I say, even the military. Sean, you have dealt with government bureaucracy for many years. People look at this decision and the mind kind of boggles. How does a decision like this get made that the families of the fallen weren't even invited to attend, that veterans weren't invited to attend? How do you think this process unfolded? You know, we see a long tradition of the bureaucracy that has had, you know, the civilian bureaucracy has long had a resentment towards serving members and veterans, that they feel that they're treated uh, unfairly better 
than the bureaucrats would be in a given situation without them really understanding what soldiers and family members of the soldiers go through. So we have this gaping disconnect. You know, there's a, there's a bit of a, a culture of entitlement at the senior bureaucracy. They're quite, uh, they're quite disassociated from the country they serve, that they come up with their own rationale for decisions. So in this particular case, there's no doubt in my mind that this was a face-saving move. They wanted to avoid controversy. And as Ed said, they wanted to brush this under the rug because there has been a long tradition of governments, you know, both blue and red, that have basically seen that uh, they can undersell the cost of war, uh, whether it's financially, but also the cost of lives. And by hiding this memorial, Canada can then execute the next uh, mission without thinking about what we paid in terms of lives and family sacrifice to send, you know, our, our young men and, and women overseas into battle. Whether this was bureaucratic incompetence or a, a deliberate decision to try to put the Afghan memorial where it could not be easily visited, explain to us as civilians that are watching the show and sitting here, what does it mean for those families and for those veterans to be able to go to a visible, accessible memorial? It's, for me, it's a sense of closure. When you can go to a memorial and you can see uh, the names of the fallen and, and, and those that paid the ultimate sacrifice, it, it helps with closure. It goes, okay, okay you know, uh, Canada and Canadians appreciate what we do and, and the cost that's incurred in lives to maintain the lifestyle that we enjoy. Sean, how do they fix this? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Ed's absolutely right. And, and it's not just the soldiers that need to grieve. I mean, we had Canadians heavily invested in, in this war. I mean, they were highly supportive, whether it's, you know, Red Shirt Fridays or, or whether it's the Highway of Heroes. So Canadians themselves that never served have a right to know what's going on. And I would say that that's also the answer of how to fix this. We need to broadly involve Canadians, uh, you know, and uncover this secrecy, whether it's a secrecy of a memorial or passing veterans legislation without debate, uh, you know, right behind us in the House of Parliament. Um, we need to involve Canadians in how we treat our veterans, our serving members that are injured, and their families. And the only way to do that really is to have a, a broadly based uh, commission of inquiry. So we learn the cost of war, the, how our veterans have been treated after they return home, how those families have been abandoned, and then that will give political license for the major change that needs to occur. Ed, I know you must have been hearing from other veterans. What's the sense in the community of what veterans would like to see done here for the memorial to commemorate the war that they fought in? The, from the emails that I've received, uh, veterans want accessibility. And they, they want also to have all of the material that's associated with that memorial, letters from families and mementos that were left in the memorial, that was all saved. Uh, two boxes worth that were so emotional that the team that I was with, we couldn't catalog it. Try and read a mother's letter. It, it, it's, it's overwhelming. So those two boxes are sitting here in Ottawa somewhere never to be seen, and they could be incorporated with that memorial and give a better overall picture uh, of, of the loss and how it affected families and colleagues and, and Canadians as a whole. One of the suggestions has been possibly the War Museum. Is that a good potential place for Sean? Well, I mean, if there are genuine concerns about security, then obviously that would address that problem. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about technical barriers to honoring the ultimate sacrifice. No barrier that's technical should, should usurp the need to honor that sacrifice and to allow a nation to openly grieve, because when a nation can't grieve, then, then the 
path forward becomes distorted, that we make bad decisions going forward, and when soldiers can't grieve, then the cost is just immeasurable in terms of they start blaming themselves. If government, you know, does not believe that the right thing to do is to open up this memorial, then how do soldiers deal with all that grief? It's hard for soldiers to blame government. So what they end up doing is blaming themselves, and that turns into addictions, uh, dysfunctional behavior, and ultimately it turns into suicide. Well, and you have a tremendous number of medals there, Ed, for your service. How does it affect you? Just, uh, well, just the fact that all of the work I put, I put into uh, helping bring that memorial back and the fact that I'm not welcome to go and see it is, is very disappointing. Sean, uh, the, the overall relationship between veterans and this government has been strained. What do you see as the major flashpoints right now? So right now, I mean, we had that lump sum that replaced lifelong pensions. This government was brought in, you know, into power in large part with veterans' support that believed that the government was going to replace that lump sum with, a, with a, a real lifelong pension that existed before. All they did was convert that lump sum into an annuity um, and, uh, and then just did a basically a marketing change and heavily uh, pushed, uh, you know, basically the new and improved, uh, you know, lump sum program. So, so this has become, veterans are seeing the effect now. April 1st, it came into effect. Soldiers are seeing the results of this improvement, which is, you know, a check for $10 or $20 extra a month um, for those that were lucky enough to get extra money. Uh, unfortunately, the soldiers going forward that apply after April 1st, especially the most disabled, will be receiving less than their counterparts pre-April 1st, 2019. And uh, this will only get worse, and it'll be a problem for whatever government uh, forms after the next election. Well, we have to wrap it up there, but thank you both very much for your service and for your time today. I know it's not an easy thing to talk about. Thank you. Thank you, Mercedes. Shortly after that discussion, the chief of the defense staff issued an extensive apology and said that all veterans and family members of the fallen will be able to visit the memorial and public tours will be scheduled. With the House of Commons set to rise within the next month, the clock is ticking for Canada to ratify the new NAFTA deal. In the U.S. Congress, Democrats are demanding changes before they will seal the deal. Is the future of USMCA in jeopardy just one week after tariffs were lifted? Ambassador Bruce Heyman knows a bit about negotiating deals between Canada and the U.S. He is the author of a new book called The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. And Ambassador Heyman joins me now from Montreal. Welcome to the show, sir. Great to be here. You're a very connected Democrat. I know you're talking to the Democratic leadership all the time. And a lot of Canadians are wondering, with the Democrat-controlled Congress, will they ratify a deal without any changes? So there was a lot of momentum created for ratification, I think, over the last week for USMCA, especially given the steel and aluminum tariffs being dropped by President Trump, which shouldn't have been there to begin with from, from my perspective and many other Americans' perspective. So he opened up the Republican side, especially Senator Grassley and others. Um, and I think as the week went on, we also know that Ambassador Lighthizer had had very good conversations with Democratic leadership. But over the last few days, now, uh, politicking from the Republican side uh, has not been helpful, I think, in this process, especially the accusations that the Speaker of the House doesn't understand USMCA and it's too complex for her. GOP 
um, has gone out with talking points against the speaker on USMCA. That is not constructive or helpful. And also putting conditions on it, on future legislation being conditional to USMCA passage. All of this is a different tone that was happening, you know, midweek and earlier in the week. But here's the good news. Uh, the Speaker of the House is a professional. She's an adult. She can compartmentalize these things, and she can focus on what needs to get done. And as long as USTR continues to work with, with her and the Democratic leadership to address the issues that she's talked about from the very beginning and be able to get those addressed, I think there's a path to getting this done. But uh, that's going to be work ahead for USTR and the Democratic leadership to find that path of success. How much of a risk do you think that that domestic politicking plays, though, to the overall deal? It's not helpful. It's not constructive. It's completely immature and amateur hour. That being said, I do know uh, the speaker and I know the people who are working with her. And they are literally just saying, you know, okay, that's happened. Let's put our head down. If we can get a deal that's good for American workers, American farmers, and for the environment on the enforcement side, which is what they've been talking about all along, I think this deal has a path to getting passed. It's narrow. It's sometime in the summer or early fall, but it has a path to getting done. But I would say the ball's not in the Democrats' court. The, the Democrats have been talking about this all along. The ball is in USTR's court to find a compromise, a meeting ground to satisfy the needs of Congress. And is it possible to do that without reopening the deal? I don't know. Look, the, the complexities and technicalities of side agreements and side letters and reopening or not reopening, I'll leave that to the negotiators. I think that from the beginning that the speaker has said Democratic leadership is virtually okay with an agreement, except they want to make sure that the provisions that were agreed to are enforceable and enforced, and their methods of doing that, when things don't go the way you had expected, what are the enforcement mechanisms that are in place? And those enforcement mechanisms that are built into the agreement currently are not strong enough for Democratic leadership. And they have voiced that from the very beginning, and I think that there's no surprise here. So if this deal is to get done, the USTR is going to have to figure out how to build that in. And I think there are creative ways of doing it, and I don't want to limit it to you have to do A or B, but you just have to figure out how to solve that problem, which is good news for American workers and farmers and environmentalists and others. Um, so it should get done. We have a pretty high-profile visit coming up this week. Vice President Mike Pence is going to be coming yeah. to Canada. Uh, President Trump has only been to Canada when he attended the G7 in Quebec. He hasn't actually come up for that kind of a bilateral visit. What message yeah. does it send to Canada that we're getting the vice president instead of the president on USMCA? So um, from my perspective, the vice president is always important. We had. Uh, multiple visits. Uh, uh, Vice President Biden came to Canada. We even had a state dinner for him in Ottawa even after the election, and he came for uh, the Vancouver uh, Women's World Cup, and I was with him and write about each of those visits in, in, in our book. But I, I will tell you, I think the way the president behaved last time during the G7, his behavior both during the visit, 
um, I would say even before the visit, uh, implementing those steel and aluminum tariffs, and then his behavior during the G7, and then post the G7, um, I would say that it's probably, you know, a high-risk move to get him to come back to Canada right now, uh, given his previous behavior and his ability to go off the rails on Twitter and comments that, you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing that he's not coming. Mm, so it could be good for Canada. but I risk to the relationship potentially that I'd like to ask you about is Huawei. Of course, mm -hmm. massive Chinese telecom company. Canada's still trying to decide whether to ban it or not. The U.S. took some pretty aggressive action against Huawei in yeah. past weeks. What is the risk to the Canada-U.S. relationship if Canada does not ban Huawei? So I think we have to see how this plays out a little bit further. The president overcomplicated this issue, as he does so many issues, unfortunately. On one hand, he says Huawei is a U.S. national security threat, and we can't have this equipment or, um, you know, any of the implementation on 5G in the United States, and he's gotten a lot of members of Congress all up in arms. And then in the same breath, he sits down and says, yeah, well, maybe we'll negotiate that away in our trade agreement. And so either it is a national security threat or it's not, and you don't negotiate that way in a trade agreement. And so, you know, he's made this too complicated and really put Canada in a tough spot on this. And so, look, I, I think that, you know, I think that we should do things together. It's about collaborating. Um, but I think that the president hasn't played all his cards yet on what he really believes on this. Is it something he wants to negotiate away? And is this a complete negotiating strategy? Or is this something that they really believe is a threat to national security? And I am not as versed in the complexity of the technology, whether that's true or not true. Um, but I hope if it is true and it's a national threat that we don't negotiate it away. And if it's just a negotiating strategy, I hope we're not forcing our allies into a bad situation. So I think we've got to see this play out a little bit more. Well, speaking of that bad situation, of course, there are two Canadians who are detained uh, and have now been charged in jail in China. Do you think that the United States government is doing enough to try to help Canada with a situation that's been caused because we arrested, uh, of course, a very senior Huawei executive at the prompting of the U.S. on an American warrant? When I was the U.S. ambassador, we had a similar case. Um, we had a Chinese national that we requested extradition from Canada. His name was Su Bin. Um, the Chinese were very upset about it. They wanted him back in China. He was stealing military secrets. And, you know, but China never dared do anything to Canada like they're doing today. And I think it's a failure of the U.S. administration not standing up for our allies and not standing up for Canada in these examples. I think the other example was with Saudi Arabia. I think the world's changed, where Donald Trump is focusing about me, not we. He's focusing as an isolationist, you know, make America great. And I feel what makes America great is our relationship with Canada and other allies around the world. I think he's opened the door to this type of behavior. And I think the language, which I just said, um, which made it appear that the Huawei whole situation was political, not legitimate. And so he's, he's, he's made a mess of this, and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry Canada's in the middle of it, and I hope it gets resolved very quickly, and especially uh, for the Canadian citizens that are being treated this way back in, Can in China. Ambassador Heyman, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure.
Alberta Premier Jason Kenney will repeal the carbon tax in his province on Thursday, and Alberta will launch its own constitutional challenge to the tax. Meanwhile, here in Ottawa, senators will be back this week deliberating on two major government environmental bills, the tanker ban and Bill C-69. Will the government accept changes to these bills, and will they take action against Alberta as they have in other provinces who didn't comply with the carbon tax? Joining me now from Halifax is Sean Fraser, Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of the Environment. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you very much. It's a treat to be here. Let's start out in Alberta. Premier Jason Kenney announcing that he's tossing the carbon tax this week, introducing the legislation to do so. That puts him in line with a growing list of premiers who are fighting that carbon tax. How do you plan to respond to Premier Kenney's decision to throw it out? Well, what we've said uh, from the beginning is that we uh, want to ensure that it's not free to pollute anywhere in Canada. Uh, our plan to put a price on pollution is one of over 50 measures that we've implemented to help reduce our emissions. And we tried to work with provinces and territories who were willing to take a leadership role when it came to implementing a meaningful plan to fight climate change. Uh, for those provinces who were refusing to step up to the plate, uh, we've been very clear that we're going to implement our federal backstop uh, to ensure, as I said, that it's not free to pollute anywhere in Canada. When will your government act to impose a carbon tax on Alberta? Uh, we'll be looking to move as quickly as possible uh, once the Alberta government implements what it says it's going to, to ensure that there's as small a gap in, as possible. Uh, we've obviously implemented our system in four provinces to date, and we won't hesitate to put it in place. We're currently looking at options to uh, make sure that it's administered in the most effective way, uh, but we will be moving as quickly as possible to implement the federal backstop in Alberta. Are we talking days, weeks, months? Uh, we don't have a specific date set in time yet. We want to make sure that we take the time to get it right and uh, implement the system that's now in, in place in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and New Brunswick. Uh, I don't want to put a specific date on it, but we're going to be uh, looking to do it uh, as quick as we're able to, quite frankly. Jason Kenney says that his government is going to launch a constitutional challenge against the carbon tax. That will make Alberta the third province to do so. But with the legal bills mounting for the federal government fighting these provinces in court, is this a good use of taxpayers' money? It's uh, unbelievable to me that the provinces think it's a priority of their uh, constituents uh, to fight climate uh, action rather than fight climate change. You see in Ontario, Doug Ford has set aside $30 million uh, for his campaign uh, and the legal challenge. And you've seen recently uh, that this is throwing good money after bad. Uh, they're making cuts on important services. At the same time, they seem to find money to fight a losing battle in court. If you actually look at the decision of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal that came out uh, just uh, a matter of weeks ago, what I find uh, particularly interesting is they clearly declared that uh, the federal government has the constitutional authority to implement uh, the regime laid out in our legislation. Uh, but even the dissent uh, acknowledged that uh, GHG pricing works to reduce emissions and that the federal government could have uh, jurisdiction to implement a system, uh, whether it's under the national concern or the power to implement taxation, is the only point that they had a meaningful difference of opinion on. Uh, I'm completely confident that we're going to be able to implement our system on uh, because we have the constitutional authority to to do so and I find it extremely disappointing that there's now uh, five uh, provinces that seem to be throwing taxpayers money away uh, fighting a losing battle purely for political purposes. You don't think there's any value in the arguments that they're making? Uh, absolutely not. If you look at the decision that was just uh, before the court in Saskatchewan, uh, what they held is that having a minimum standard of, uh, of behavior that we expect of provinces is a national concern that the federal government has the constitutional authority to, uh, to, to regulate. Uh, quite frankly, uh, pollution knows no uh, 
provincial boundaries. Uh, this is an issue of global concern and certainly the federal government has the authority to legislate in the national interest. Speaking of global concerns, late last week the President of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duarte, announced that he was going to ship Canadian garbage back immediately and not wait until next month like your government had proposed. This has now been a five-year dispute. Why did the federal government allow this to fester for so long? Uh, certainly, and for the benefit of those who have not been following the story closely, it starts back in 2013 uh, when a Canadian exporter uh, shipped uh, mislabeled containers uh, uh, prior to our, our government taking office uh, to the Philippines. Uh, when it arrived, uh, we didn't have the regulations in place at the time uh, to, to demand the repatriation of those containers. We actually adopted regulations in 2016 to pull ourselves in compliance uh, with the Basel Convention, which is the international treaty directly on point. Uh, since that time, there's been efforts by the Philippines uh, government to uh, make recovery against the importer uh, unsuccessfully to date. And the Canadian exporter uh, has not been uh, involved in, in doing any active business. Uh, so recovering uh, amounts from them for, the, uh, for what should be their responsibility uh, has certainly been difficult. Uh, we've been working on this uh, for, for months now with the government of the Philippines. Uh, we've uh, offered to uh, pay for the repatriation of the containers so we can uh, take care of them in Canada and dispose of them here. Uh, we have uh, gone through the process of expediting a procurement award uh, to a company that was uh, just awarded days ago, uh, and we expect that uh, th this is going to move quite quickly. In fact, we expect the first containers to move near the very beginning of June and uh, the containers to be removed from the Philippines by the 10th of June. Have you spoken to President Duarte or his government since they've announced that they're going to ship back the garbage before the Canadian government can act because it's taking too long? There's been uh, regular conversations between officials and uh, both at the uh, d department and uh, elected level. Uh, between uh, our government and the government of the Philippines. Uh, it seems as though the conversations that we're having at those levels uh, are very productive and are leading to what I, I envision will be a short-term resolution. Uh, obviously, the president has made this a, uh, a political priority for himself and has taken a pretty strong stand, uh, but we are committed, no ifs, ands, or buts, to seeing those containers repatriated to Canada as quickly as possible. And if I can, uh, I want to particularly draw attention to the efforts of some of my colleagues, Kevin Lamoureux, Anthony Housefather, and Marco Mendicino, who represent significant Filipino communities who've been champions on this issue because they want to see those containers out of the Philippines and on their way back to Canada as soon as humanly possible. Why is Canada shipping garbage to developing countries? Uh, you know what? We shouldn't be. Uh, these were containers in 2013 that were mislabeled. They were supposed to include plastics. Uh, and there's actually uh, rules that we've entered into on the global uh, stage uh, to ensure that you can't export um, uh, waste without the consent of the receiving country. If private parties want to enter into an agreement with one another uh, on, uh, on the basis of full uh, information and consent, uh, then that's for them to do so. Uh, but in this case, uh, there was frankly some dishonesty at play, and the Philippines government is dealing with something that they didn't bargain for. Uh, when that's the case, and we can't track down the person who's responsible for uh, exporting goods that were falsely labeled, uh, I believe that we have uh, a duty to uh, work with our international partners uh, to, to make good on our commitments in accordance with the regulations that we just adopted in 2016. Do we have any sense of what the scale is when it comes to Canadian companies who are shipping garbage to the developing world? Uh, I'd have to dig in to get the background information for you on the extent of this business. Uh, I, uh, I, I would guess that there are it, it's some business, but it's not a, a pillar of our national economy, so to speak. But to the extent you want uh, firm numbers on the size of this industry, I'd have to do a little more homework.
Sean, last month Global did an investigation looking at the recycling system in Canada and the recycling industry, and it found that far fewer items are actually being accepted and a lot more is ending up in the landfill than people realize when they put those items in their recycling bins at home. Does the government have any plan to address this issue? Um, so look, th this is a, a really good question. Uh, obviously, uh, waste management typically falls to provincial and more often municipal jurisdictions. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's uh, no role for the federal government. Uh, if I look, for example, at the uh, work we've been doing with the provinces and territories to work towards a zero plastic waste strategy, I think there's huge room for improvement that we can achieve if we uh, take examples of some provinces uh, who have a, a uniform uh, waste management, uh, uh, essentially sorting rules. Uh, in British Columbia, for example, the situation is much better than Ontario that has, uh, frankly, hundreds of different rules depending on the community in which you live. Uh, this is an enormous missed opportunity, not only to divert waste from, or to divert uh, products that could be recycled from our landfills, but there's companies in Canada that are doing business recycling plastics today, turning them into products that are useful, uh, participating in the circular economy, to use the, uh, uh, the phraseology of the industry, where they can uh, take plastic materials that can be recycled and resold uh, after they've been repurposed into a different good. Uh, they're helping manufacture materials for roofing, uh, uh, covering for roads that make them more resistant to weather. Uh, it's in our interest to do this because there's an industry to be taken advantage of and we frankly shouldn't be continuing to ship recyclable material to landfills the way that we have been in recent history. There's two fairly important bills in front of the Senate and of course the House is coming back this week so we want to talk about those energy bills. One of those bills is C69 and it has to do with building new energy projects like pipelines. The other contentious bill is the tanker ban. There's been some rough waters in the Senate for both of these bills. The Senate committee that's been looking at the tanker ban bill is not recommending that the Senate pass it and there's been a significant amount of amendments introduced to Bill C69 including those from the oil industry. Is your government willing to accept those revisions on C69 or drop the tanker ban altogether if the Senate does not pass it? Uh, so first dealing with uh, Bill C-48, I actually sat as a member of the Transportation Committee when we studied that bill on the uh, House of Commons side of Parliament. Uh, one of the things that was pretty clear to me is that there were communities uh, that had a serious interest in ensuring that they didn't uh, put themselves in harm's way when it came to the potential for a, uh, a tanker spill. Uh, the entire um, uh, northern coast of BC uh, had very strong opinions of this and though there wa were some dissenting voices uh, they were enthused by the fact that we actively campaigned on this commitment and Canadians elected a government uh, that planned specifically to implement this, uh, th these sorts of measures. Uh, I, I will not tell the Senate what to do, they are independent of the House of Commons, uh, but I would remind them that uh, when it comes to the measures included in Bill C-48, uh, these are measures that Canadians voted for and I hope that the Senate takes seriously uh, that, that point of view when they're considering the recommendation of the Senate committee. Uh, to your question on Bill C-69, what this represents is the government's uh, attempt to restore public confidence in our environmental assessment process and implement better rules to ensure that good projects go ahead, but that we're able to stop bad projects when we realize the magnitude of the adverse environmental consequences. To the extent that the Senate has uh, thoughts or amendments that they're proposing that don't uh, interfere with the spirit of the bill, of course we'll consider them in good faith. Uh, the purpose of the Senate is to uh, improve legislation, in my opinion, and to the extent that they've recommended amendments uh, that will do that, we'd be happy to, uh, to, to think about incorporating them into the final version of the legislation. Uh, to the extent that their proposed amendments seek to defeat the, uh, the purpose of the bill, which is to provide better rules to assess major projects in federal jurisdiction, uh, then I, I doubt they'll find favour with the federal government. 
When it comes to the tanker ban, you're an East Coaster. There's a lot of people in Alberta and on the West Coast who wonder why it is only a ban applying to the West Coast. Why not the East Coast as well or the Northern Coast? They say that that's unfair. So there's a number of um, interests at play here. We certainly are a government that wants to ensure that we can get our products to market uh, in a responsible way. If you look uh, at what's going on in the Canadian energy industry right now, 99% uh, of our oil and gas resources uh, when we took office in 2015 were being sold to customers in a single country, the United States. Uh, the same is true uh, today, uh, rather not 2015, uh, 2006, uh, and the same is true when we took over in 2015. Uh, the fact is we do need to get our resources to market, so implementing a, a tanker ban on both the east and west coast uh, is simply not feasible because we do want to get our resources to market in an environment environmentally responsible way. There's some unique nuances about the uh, coastal environment of northern British Columbia in Canada's north. Uh, if you look at the uh, the pristine uh, coastal environment around places like uh, Haida Gwaii, for example, uh, and the indigenous communities that testified uh, before the transport committee that I mentioned I served on uh, a few years ago when this bill was going through, uh, it's clear that there's uh, a heightened level of concern about the consequences that would arise in the event of a disaster. Uh, at the same time, we're implementing a 1.5 billion dollar oceans protection plan to ensure that where there is uh, marine shipping where we have the resources in place to have a world-class spill response and, and a strategy to prevent spills from taking place in the first place. When it comes to the tanker ban, if the Senate doesn't recommend it, will your government move forward anyhow? Uh, to the extent uh, that, that I understand the rules of parliamentary procedure, before a, uh, a bill becomes law, uh, we need both the House of Commons and the Senate to, uh, to sign off on identical versions of the legislation. Uh, I sincerely hope uh, that the Senate, when considering the recommendations of their committee, understand that it is the will of a democratically elected government uh, to pass this legislation, and they give serious thought to uh, the positions that the government has advanced uh, before simply uh, throwing the bill out the window. Okay, Sean, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check us out online at thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.